0: I'm going to go ahead and get started. Um, I have just about as much material as I did last week, so we're probably going to run just a little bit late, but let's go ahead and pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this day and what a blessing. The Lord's Day is to your people, we pray, Lord, that we would um, indeed be the Recipients of an abundance of blessings from you. And um, Lord, that uh, you would be among us, that you would sanctify your people as we gather in your presence. And now, Lord, uh, during this time, as we consider uh, the subject of worship, Lord, we pray that you would teach us and again uh, show us and give mm-hmm. us grateful hearts for the tremendous privilege that is ours uh, being among your people, unto the new covenant, and being called to worship you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week, we began a biblical theology of the Old Testament, uh biblical theology of worship. And today, the plan was to cover uh, biblical theology of worship in the New Testament. However, since last week, we did not get as far as I had planned and hoped We're going to begin today's class trying to bridge that gap somewhat and uh, cover some of what I had hoped to cover in the first class and help set the way for what we need to see in regard to New Covenant worship. I don't really have much time to review. I'm just going to pick up where I left off last week. Um, If you remember, we came to the end of the book of Exodus where the glory of God filled the tabernacle and the cloud descended on the tent of meeting. On Mount Sinai, Moses had received the words of the covenant, the law of God, including the instructions for the tabernacle and its ministry. When the tabernacle had been constructed, the glory of God that had appeared on the mountain and had been present with the people of God for about a year prior to that came then and made his dwelling in his new sanctuary, which would, where it would remain in the midst of the camp. Of Israel. Now, we also saw in the final verses of Exodus that when the glory filled the tabernacle, that glory was so great that Moses could not enter the tabernacle. And that's essentially where the book ends. Um, we're left with this dilemma of how man can enter into the holy presence of God. The next book, the book of Leviticus, uh, addresses this problem. And effectively, we learn that neither Moses nor any other human is able to enter the sanctuary of God apart from the provisions made by God for those who approach him. And those provisions are given to us again in the book of Leviticus. In the first seven chapters of Leviticus uh, are outlined the various sacrifices that are required by Yahweh for his people, the burnt offerings, the sin offerings, uh, peace offerings, etc. And chapter 8 deals with the consecration of the priesthood of Aaron and his sons who would conduct the service of the tabernacle. Then in Leviticus 9, we have the inaugural worship service of the tabernacle with a consecrated priesthood and with the means of approach to God being revealed and implemented In Leviticus 9.23, we read that Moses and Aaron entered the tabernacle, whereas Moses had not previously been able to. And when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of God appeared to all the people. There were shouts of celebration, and the people rejoiced as they fell on their faces before God. It is in the next chapter that we read about Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu Uh, offering up unauthorized fire before the Lord. Like Cain, uh, they offered unacceptable worship contrary to what Yahweh had prescribed. They transgressed the law in regard to the worship of Yahweh and as a result, they were struck down in the very act and their dead bodies fell right there in the tabernacle, their corpses thus defiling the holy sanctuary of God. This introduced then a new problem, which is addressed in Leviticus 16, where God introduces the regulations for the Day of Atonement, by which even the sanctuary itself is atoned for and made fit for its ongoing ministry. The section following the death of Nadab and Abihu deals primarily with the distinction between things clean and unclean, then the sections. Following the Day of Atonement in chapter 16 deals primarily with the Holiness Code distinguishing that which is holy from that which is common. But chapter 16 in the center of the book picks up where chapter 10 left off. And as we explained last week, uh, this is the central portion of the Pentateuch as a whole and is of central importance. So let's look together at Leviticus 16. We'll read the first three verses. Sorry, I have a cough drop in my mouth and it is affecting my articulation here. <clears throat> Leviticus 16.1 The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram. For the burnt offering and it goes on then through the rest of the chapter in great detail about how Aaron the high priest is to conduct the ministry of the tabernacle on the day of atonement which is by the way called a a Sabbath of solemn rest or a Sabbath of Sabbaths it was the holiest day of the year for Israel we don't have time as I say to detail all that took place that day. But if you look down at verse 32, we have a summary of all that was atoned for on that holy day. Leviticus 16, 32 says, And the priest, who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place, shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary And he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you. That atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So here Yahweh has made then final provision for him to dwell in the midst of his people and for them to be able to continue to approach him in worship once a year, every year, making atonement for them along with the whole tabernacle and its ministry. So then, now with every provision being made and the ministry fully functional, we come to the book of Numbers. And in the first 10 chapters, we see the arrangement of the camp of the people of Israel there at Sinai still. And this arrangement also reflects the centrality of the tabernacle and the holiness of the Lord. At the center of the camp is the tent of meeting, the holy sanctuary, which then is surrounded by the tents of the priests and uh, Levites who minister there. And then arranged around the Levites were the tents of the rest of the tribes of Israel in the formation that Yahweh had instructed. So God dwelt there in the midst of his people. And then when it was time for them to move out, the cloud would lift up from over the tent and Israel would break camp. And in the formation that God has instructed, they would follow the Lord as he led them through the wilderness with the Ark of the Covenant and the cloud out in front going before them so it was about a year after arriving at sinai that they started out on the rest of their journey with god in their midst and we read in numbers 10 verses 33 to 36 it says so they set out from the mount of the lord three days journey and the ark of the covenant of the lord went before them three days journey to seek out a resting place for them and the cloud of the lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp, and whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. <clears throat> now, there are Two psalms in particular which pick up on this statement by Moses um, in which they celebrate then the triumphant march of Yahweh as he leads his people through the wilderness to the intended place of rest on the mountain that he had chosen in the promised land. As the song of Moses after the exodus had celebrated that deliverance by Yahweh, the divine warrior, in Exodus 15. That pattern is followed by these psalms. Singing of God's mighty acts of salvation has been a major part of biblical worship, at least since the days of Moses. If you will look at Psalm 68. um, In Psalm 68.1, David cites what we just read in Numbers 10.33, almost verbatim. He then goes on to poetically rehearse the centuries-long march of God, beginning at Sinai until he reached the holy mountain that he intended for his resting place. This psalm speaks of the glory of Jerusalem in his own time, and it continues then projecting into the future the vindication and victory of the Lord and His people. Starting then in verse 1, it says, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad and shall exult before the Lord, they shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, exalt before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. The Lord's victory and provision, as we see here, are causes for great celebration for the people of God as he leads them, not only through the wilderness, but then through through the conquest of the land, and ultimately for the securing of Jerusalem for his dwelling. So this psalm telescopes that whole history down into this one, this one march of God to his intended destiny. Verse 15 to 17 um, depicts uh, then the more splendid mountains of Bashan that are east of the Jordan. It depicts them as being envious and angry that the Lord has bypassed them and chosen Mount Zion in Jerusalem for his dwelling. It says, O mountain of God, mountains of Bashan, O many-peaked mountains, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. The glorious presence of God that appeared first at Sinai, then in the tent that made the long journey, has now come to rest on Mount Zion, where the Lord will make his abode in the sanctuary of his temple this psalm is obviously written sometime after jerusalem had been conquered and david had brought the ark of the covenant there to build a more permanent temple for god as we see in verse 29 it says because of your temple at jerusalem kings shall bear gifts to you and of those gifts verse 18 to 20 says You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Selah. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God, the Lord, belong deliverances from death. So the Lord's triumphant march comes to an end at the place of his rest as he ascends the mountain, delivers his people, and receives the wealth of the peoples. And it is to Zion then that his people, in the decades and centuries to follow, would make the regular pilgrimage to assemble before God to celebrate the feasts there. Psalm 132 uh, is a song of ascents. Um, It's one of the many songs commonly sung by the people of Israel on their pilgrimages. As they approached the city of Jerusalem, as they ascended the mountain, they would sing the songs of Zion. And the psalm begins by reminding the Lord of David's devotion and determination to bring the ark to Jerusalem, to build the Lord a temple there. It reflects the final leg of its journey from Sinai to Jerusalem, now centuries after leaving Sinai and decades after uh, the ark had been kept at Kiriath-Jerim. And as it was making then this final leg of the journey, it once again... Calls on God to arise and go before them. It says, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body, I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. Okay, so then with the completion Of the temple in Jerusalem, then there is great celebration and there is great hope. And I wish we had time to talk about the inaugural service at the dedication of the temple, as we touched on with the tabernacle. Um, But as in that case, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And we can read about that in 1 Kings 8 or 2 Chronicles 5 to 7. And the scene there was even more impressive than the earlier one. Again, it's indicated that when the glory filled the temple, the priests could not enter because of the glory that was there. But unfortunately, the pattern of false worship that we saw with Cain and with Nadab and Abihu, and we didn't talk about this, but with the golden calf there, at Sinai, and others, the pattern continued and worsened from the time of Solomon's reign on and led to Israel's ultimate expulsion from the land. They were exiled from the land of blessing, even as Adam and Eve had been exiled from Eden. Again, I wish we had time to look at this, but the prophet Ezekiel um, is shown a vision Uh, In a vision, the extent of Israel's idolatry and he sees a stunning depiction of the glory of God's presence departing the temple. As judgment is about to fall on Jerusalem and as the destruction of the temple is at hand because of the unfaithfulness and idolatry of Israel. The promised blessing of God dwelling with his people has been lost due to Israel's false worship and idolatry. That judgment and destruction came, and even with the promised restoration and the eventual rebuilding of the temple, that rebuilding is a great disappointment, and there is no record of the presence of God returning to dwell there. But new and greater promises had been given with the promise of a new covenant with universal blessings. And so now we come to the coming of Christ and the new covenant realities associated with it. So when we come to the new covenant and the New Testament scriptures... We need to keep in mind that the Lord Jesus himself taught that the Old Testament scriptures were ultimately about him. You remember in Luke 24 where he is expounding Moses and all the prophets to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he said that these scriptures were revealing Christ and his work. In John chapter 5, Jesus tells the Pharisees that they searched the scriptures thinking that in them they had eternal life. But he says, it is these that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And now as we come to focus more specifically on the New Testament scriptures, we can see, Lord willing, just how Christ fulfills the Old Testament scriptures specifically pertaining to worship. And we'll be looking mostly at the Gospel of John and the book of Hebrews. So first we'll see that Jesus is depicted as the true tabernacle. He fulfills the purpose of the tabernacle. In John 1.14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Greek term... For dwelt among us more literally means pitched his tabernacle or lived in his tent among us. Uh, You could say, making it a verb, he tabernacled among us. This uh, would be the same word used in the Greek Old Testament in reference uh, to the tabernacle. The connection would be obvious to those who are familiar with these scriptures God has chosen to dwell among his people in a far more personal way than under the Old Covenant. The central importance of the tabernacle and God's purposes is fulfilled in Jesus' incarnation. Next, um, we see that Jesus is the glory of God. Hebrews 1.3 says, says that he is the radiance of God's glory. That same glorious presence of God that filled the tabernacle to dwell among men, now that glorious presence of God has come in the tabernacle of his humanity as he himself dwelt among men, as God with us. And John says that we have seen his glory. His glory was... Revealed in his incarnation, though it was veiled, his glory was revealed in his works. Specifically, the signs and wonders done to demonstrate his glory and witness who he is. And we see that mentioned first in John 2:11. His glory was manifest in his power over creation and over the demonic realm, which we'll see, I believe, uh, in our service today. His glory was manifested in his power over creation. I'm sorry I just said that, but he does it more than once. His glory was manifest in his loving acts of kindness and goodness and of mercy and faithfulness. His glory was manifest in the truth of his teaching, in the power and wisdom of his teaching, in the authority and judgment of his teaching. His glory was physically manifest to a few On the Mount of Transfiguration, when the veil was momentarily pulled back, his glory was revealed in the perfection of his righteous life and in his death and resurrection. And John speaks of that in numerous places. I think I have those in your notes there. And so John says, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In this prologue, John clearly has in mind the events at Sinai as he writes this, and particularly Exodus 33 and 34. In verse 14, he refers again to the incarnation of Christ as God tabernacling with us. Of course, God filling the tabernacle was the culminating event at Sinai. In verse 17, he speaks of the law given through Moses, which, of course, was given at Sinai, specifically the new tablets of the testimony given in Exodus 34. In verse 18, John says, No one has ever seen God, even as Moses was told in Exodus 33, 20, You cannot see my face. And again in verse 23, My face shall not be seen. And where Moses requests in Exodus thirty three eighteen, 18, show me your glory, John can say in 114, we have seen his glory because Jesus himself has made God known in his incarnation. And John further describes that glory as being full of grace and truth. The Greek terms for grace and truth used here correspond to those terms used in Exodus 34:6, when Moses asked Yahweh, let me see your glory. And God descended in the cloud and passed before him and declared his attributes and his name. <clears throat> and we, we read there, it says in 34, 6, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Abounding in hesed is the Hebrew or full of gracious covenant love. And the word translated faithfulness in the ESV can also be translated truth as in the NASB. D.A. Carson says, this pair of expressions appears again and again in the Old Testament. The two words that John uses, uses, full of grace and truth, are his ways of summing up the same ideas. And he concludes, the glory revealed to Moses when the Lord passed in front of him and sounded his name, displaying that divine goodness characterized by ineffable grace and truth, was the very same glory that John and his friends saw in the word made flesh. But while John and others have seen his glory in that unique way as they visibly beheld him while incarnate on earth, Paul tells us as well that all who have come to know God in Christ have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as revealed in the gospel. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. So Jesus is the true tabernacle of God dwelling with men. Jesus is the glory of God revealing the nature and attributes of God and the name of God and communicating the life of God to us. Next, Jesus is the true temple. In John chapter 2, Jesus declares himself to be the true temple of God. And again, this is where the glory of God's presence dwells and where God meets with his people. This is where worship is offered and communion and fellowship takes place between God and man. And Jesus says he is the temple. It was... Just before Passover and Jesus was in the temple courts when he witnessed the corruption and defilement of the temple that was taking place there. So he took it upon himself to cleanse it. When certain Jews challenged him about his authority to do this, Jesus spoke of his body as a temple which the Jews would destroy by the hands of the Romans and which he himself would raise up again in incorruptible glory. They thought he meant this stone building. Of course, after his resurrection and the church in Jerusalem grew for a generation and the gospel had spread extensively among the Gentiles, Jesus would destroy the physical stone temple in Jerusalem and he would do so by the hands of the Romans so that no stone would remain upon another And it would not be built again. Its purpose had been fulfilled. The building project that the exalted King Jesus would undertake would be his church. This would be a sort of temple expansion project. His people who would be raised from death to newness of life in union with him would be as living stones which he is building into a holy temple in the Lord in which he lives By his Spirit. This language is reminiscent of the presence of God dwelling in the tabernacle and the temple. And in Acts 2, we see more correspondence between those former dwelling places of Yahweh and his new covenant temple. On the day of Pentecost, on the inaugural day of the new covenant church, the exalted Christ poured out his Spirit on the believers gathered there in his name. The glorious Spirit of God descended, even as it had at the inaugural services of the tabernacle and of the temple, and it filled the room where they were gathered, and it came to rest on each of them. And by the work of the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, they were sanctified and empowered by God to carry out the ministry of the new covenant. Teaching further on the temple um, in John chapter 4 and on New Covenant worship, uh, we have the account of Jesus' discussion with the Samaritan woman. And I want us to uh, consider that encounter for a moment. Excuse me. After some discussion in verse 19, the woman brought up the long-running debate between Samaritans and Jews as to where God, the God-ordained place of worship was. In Samaria, upon the mountain where they were standing at the time, or on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. <clears throat> Jesus essentially dismissed the question as no longer being relevant. And this is amazing, since prior to Christ's coming, there could not have been a more Relevant or more important question. But Jesus was about to change all that. In verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. <clears throat> He's dismissing the whole question of a central earthly physical location for worship. That period of redemptive history was coming to an end. As we just saw, the temple itself would soon be destroyed and Jesus would build his church, the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. It was the presence of God that had made the temple holy and Mount Zion holy and Jerusalem holy. And just as the glory had departed the temple in Ezekiel's vision, preparing it for destruction because of the idolatry taking place there. Soon, the glory of God in the person of Jesus would likewise depart the temple after judging its defilement and pronouncing woes upon its leaders and foretelling of its coming destruction. And Jesus' departure, interestingly, would take the same route that the glory of God in Ezekiel took. In in Ezekiel's vision the end of the temple was at hand and there would be no substitute or replacement no new holy place on earth so when we come to this building on the Lord's Day or any other time we are not coming to a place that is like the Jerusalem temple Uh, this building is not God's house this building is not the church Those whom God has regenerated, saved, and called out of the world to assemble together in his presence to worship him and to serve him are the church. And yes, we sometimes call the room in there where we gather for worship a sanctuary, and that can be appropriate, but it is not because God's presence dwells in a special way in that room. It is not a holy place, rather It is a special place of God's presence only when the people who are the temple of the living God are gathered together at his appointed time to worship him in spirit and truth. Wherever that takes place, there God is in their midst, and there he sanctifies them. So when we consider what's new under new covenant worship, it's not simply that things have been decentralized. So that it's not one mountain in Jerusalem, but various places around the world. It's not as though that which made the earthly Zion's temple holy had been separated and distributed to buildings all around the world, making them holy. Rather, it is that the glory spirit which made the temple holy has been divided and distributed to each of God's people who as living stones are being built together together into a holy temple in the lord into a dwelling place for god by the spirit as we see in ephesians 2 20 to 22 and 1 peter 2 4 to 7 but this still may sound as though our worship is somehow earthbound even if it's decentralized but the finished work of christ gives us much more than freedom of mobility much more than the fact that wherever we happen to gather As God's people, he will be there with us. Again, uh, look in John 4.23. Jesus says, The hour is coming and has now come when the true worshipers of God will worship in spirit and in truth. He is revealing a profound, redemptive, historical advancement and a deep theological reality about new covenant worship. And first, I want to note quickly that the suggestion that Jesus merely means that we must worship with some degree of enthusiasm and sincerity and according to true doctrine is not an adequate explanation to describe the paradigm shifting reality that Jesus is revealing here. First and foremost, because those factors have always been essential to the true worship of God. There's nothing new in that aspect of our worship under the new covenant. I mentioned last week that true worship is from a willing heart and that it is aimed at spiritual communion with the triune God and that it is according to his regulated instructions. So it is both inward and outward according to his word. It has always been that way. But thinking in terms of its redemptive historical development, thinking in terms of the difference that Christ's coming has made, Thinking in terms of what he is saying now is as opposed to what is past, what is new as opposed to what was old, what is true in substance as opposed to what was typological and shadowy, we can understand that there's much more to the idea of worshiping in spirit and truth in new covenant realities than simply being sincere and regulated. The deeper theological significance is rooted in what Christ has revealed about himself and what he has accomplished on the cross in his resurrection and ascension and in the giving of the Holy Spirit to his people. So what difference has Christ's coming made? What is different for new covenant worshipers because of Christ's life, death, resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father and the pouring out of his spirit? Spirit, from his exalted glory upon his people. Well, it has uh, been pointed out that spirit and truth can speak of the third and the second persons of the Trinity, respectively. Um, Specifically, that truth is not merely propositional here, but personal. Uh, That it refers to the person of Jesus Christ, who refers to himself as the truth in John 14:6, and whose name is faithful and true in Revelation 19:11, and who we just saw in John 1, 14, is full of truth. But so as not to oversimplify this, we must remember as well that it is the exalted Christ who has become the life-giving spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 15:45, and it is he who pours out his spirit, and that the Spirit is also called the Spirit of Truth in John 16 13. <clears throat> that Spirit, who, by the way, Jesus said to his disciples, dwells with you, but will be in you. So in John 424, Jesus is speaking of a deeper intimacy and in worship and a deeper reality of communion with the triune god that is made possible through jesus christ's incarnation his covenant ratifying death and his resurrection to life and it's made possible because as the second and last adam he has become life-giving spirit and by the holy spirit he gives life to his people in union with himself that he would dwell with us personally that he in order that we would worship the Father in spirit and in truth. There's another consideration about true worshipers worshiping in spirit and truth, which brings us back to the question of location. Remember, Jesus is saying, don't get caught up in the question of earthly location for worship. It's not on the mountain in Samaria, and it's not on the mountain in Jerusalem, not anymore. In one sense, the locusts, Of our worship is Jesus Christ by virtue of the spirit wrought union that we have with him it is in Christ that we worship the Father and again I'll remind you that apart from the Spirit we would not be in Christ but I want to think back for a moment to when Moses received the instructions the building of the tabernacle. It was repeated four times that he was to do everything according to the pattern that was shown to him on the mountain. And as I mentioned last week, the writer of the Epistle of Hebrews tells us that what was revealed to Moses was actually patterned after the true tabernacle in heaven. And we see this in Hebrews 8.5 and 9.11, 9.24, and implied as well as in in, uh, 8, 1 and 2. This heavenly tabernacle is where Jesus' ministry takes place. This is where our faithful covenant head, the true high priest, makes atonement for our sin. This is where the Spirit lifts our prayers like incense ascending before the mercy seat of the throne of God. Prayers which our mediator receives even as he perfectly intercedes on our behalf. So the locus of our worship is Jesus Christ. But we can also say that the locus of our worship is where Christ is in the true heavenly sanctuary, seated at the right hand of God, as we see in Hebrews ten twelve and Colossians 3, 1. And Ephesians 2, 6 says that we are raised up and seated with Christ, in the heavenly places so in contrast to the restricted access of those worshipers under the old covenant with the coming of christ the mediator of a new and better covenant we are given free and permanent access to the most holy place in him for he has opened up a new and living way through his perfect priestly work once for all christ our high priest is seated at the right hand of the Father, exalted in glory. He is a minister in the holy places of the true tabernacle, not a copy built by men, but the tent that the Lord himself set up. Hebrews 8one 2 says, Now the point of what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The earthly tabernacle was made according to the pattern revealed to Moses on the mountain, but this was only an earthly copy, a shadow of the heavenly reality. So um, we understand then that All the worship forms and practices of Israel under the Old Covenant pointed towards something far more real, something perfect, something permanent. Things that are not of this creation, but belonging to the new creation. Things which have now come to us under the new covenant in Christ's own blood. Hebrews 9, starting in verse 11 reads, But when Christ appeared as a high priest, of the things that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And again in Hebrews nine twenty-four, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. In Christ's new covenant priestly work, the shadows are past and the substance is here. He has accomplished once for all a perfect salvation for his people. He has entered by his own blood and righteousness the unaccommodated, unveiled presence of God on our behalf and opened the way that we might ascend the holy mountain of the Lord, that we might enter through the veil into the most holy place of the Lord's presence, not with apprehension or fear of punishment, but with confidence that the true priest has entered the true sanctuary for us and has made Everlasting atonement. Hebrews 10, verses 12 to 14 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. <clears throat> As this passage shows, our gracious Lord is both the conquering king and perfect priest, and he is both for us. And Because of this, we are given access to approach the holy presence of Yahweh with a true heart and full assurance of faith. In Hebrews 10, 19 to 25, we're admonished, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. <clears throat> now, a moment ago, I uh, read Hebrews 8, 1 to 2, and um, I want to read it once again. It says, now, the point of what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of of the throne of the majesty in heaven. In verse 2, it says, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. I just want to point out here that the term minister uh, translates the Greek word from which we get liturgy or liturgist. That is to say, he is our worship leader in his heavenly ministry. Now, of course, this has reference to his once for all priestly work of atonement. But we learn more of what this means uh, from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, if you'll look there. Yeah. Hebrews 2, says, For he who sanctifies... Twenty-two, twenty-two, as Jesus's own words, a psalm which Jesus himself took upon his lips at several points, and in verse twelve, Jesus is both declaring the name of Yahweh to the brethren, but also in their midst, in the gathered congregation, he is singing his praise. And if you look at Psalm twenty-two, there's there's a progression. Um, and of course Jesus quotes on the cross the opening line. But we have the suffering of Jesus there, but eventually we have His exaltation. And this is taken from that portion of the psalm of Jesus' exaltation. And here <clears throat> again, he's saying, "I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. He's both declaring the name of Yahweh and singing his praise. We see Jesus in both a prophetic role of preaching and the priestly role of leading the congregation in praise. Jesus is indeed our divine liturgist, leading his people in worship, preaching his word, In the name of Yahweh, through the preacher and empowering the praise of the people. All of our worship is enabled and taken up and perfected by him, the perfect and faithful worshiper who sanctifies us. So under the new covenant, the locus of our worship is not an earthly temple, but the locus of our worship is in Jesus Christ the liturgist whose ministry is carried out and fulfilled in the true tabernacle in the heavenly Zion. Because he leads his people in worship, he enables those who worship the Father to worship in spirit and in truth. Last week, I emphasized the central importance of the tabernacle to understanding biblical worship. As central as it is to our understanding and as central as it was In the Old Covenant practice, it was just a shadow, a copy, a type. We have the reality brought to us in Christ. Our worship is not on an earthly mountain, not in an earthly sanctuary, but in Christ we worship the Father in the Spirit, in the true sanctuary, in the heavenly Mount Zion. As we close, um, I want us to look at one more scripture. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 29, the author contrasts the worship gathering at Sinai, which in many ways was paradigmatic of the Old Covenant worship, with the worship gathering under the New Covenant in which we participate. That of the Old Covenant assembly of the earthly Sinai contrasted with the New Covenant assembly of the heavenly Zion. Now, I won't take time to comment much on this, but pay particular attention to verses 22 to 24 to understand the heavenly nature of the worship we presently participate in. Consider where it is that we have come to, who is present, and what has opened the way for us to come starting in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now, as he promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Because we have come to Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, who has sprinkled his blood upon the mercy seat in the true tabernacle, we can enter God's presence to worship, not fearing for our lives as those did at Sinai, but with confidence and joy. And we join our worship with that of holy angels and with the spirits of perfected saints. This is the assembly that we are called to and which we are privileged to participate in through the spirit of Christ. It is a festal gathering, celebrating the deliverance of the Lord and rejoicing and giving thanks for his goodness. But it is not without solemnity. Our worship is to be with reverence and awe, as it says, for our God is a consuming fire. So that's what I have for us uh, for today. And we are over time so I'm not gonna entertain any questions if there were any at least not now you can come to me after though let's go ahead and pray our father we do thank you for the tremendous privilege that is ours to be called your people to be called by your name to know your name and your nature and your attributes, to have this revealed to us by the Spirit of Christ because of the person and work of Christ in revealing yourself to us and providing eternal redemption through his sacrifice. We thank you, Lord, that you are ever with us that you are always at work to sanctify us and we pray Lord now as we gather with the rest of the saints at FBC this morning uh, that you would work that sanctification in us as we come into your presence as we gather to worship you we pray Lord that we would do so in spirit and in truth that we would do so with reverence and with awe, and that seeing our Savior Christ lifted up, that seeing His glory, we would, by the work of Your Spirit, be transformed evermore into His likeness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.